following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, January 19th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Today we celebrate as a church 12 years uh, by the faithfulness of God. It was 12 years ago on January 20th, so technically tomorrow, um, that we met for the very first time. So this is our 12, uh, 12th birthday. We're kind of in those tween and preteen years. Don't care about that. I mean, that's, that's an awkward time. Uh, things get really weird, but by the faithfulness of God, and from the very beginning of the life of this church, we've tried to maintain a focus on who he was making us to be. We talked about it this fall, the culture that God was producing here. A, a people centered on the gospel, driven by the grace of God, mindful that he is at work in us. That transformation is possible. And by his spirit, he is doing that work in us, mindful of his mission in our lives. And at the same time, that he does a work through us that others might come to know saving faith through his son. So we focused on that. God has not ceased for 12 years to give us opportunities to be stretched in those things. In fact, someone sent me an email this week. It was a Yelp review of Redemption Hill Church. It's kind of like a report card for 12 years. They said, really honest, talk about Jesus, really vulnerable. And they said, friendly, but not too friendly. And I was like, I don't know what to make of that, but God has not ceased to give us opportunities to stretch in being who he's called us to be and, and who he's growing us to be. And while it might not look that way on a holiday weekend like this, let me just tell you that those of you who are here, next weekend, God will continue to continue to give us opportunities to be stretched in our mindfulness of what he is doing as he continues to add to our numbers. So maybe next week as we grow in this gospel centrality and mission-mindedness and grace-drivenness, you will prepare to come with the mindset that, you know, if Redemption Hill is home, maybe I'll park all the way in the back so that those that God is bringing here for the first time, those that God is bringing here to hear the gospel and to find a church home might have an easier way of finding their way in. And as you're walking in from the back 40, you can explain to your kids why you're doing it. As we're being mindful of others that God is bringing, we're parking out there and you get in here and they wonder why are we here so early? You didn't pick that one up, did you? you'll have a chance to explain to them that you recognize that as you gather, even on a morning like this, God is bringing people to hear the gospel and you're here to be able to welcome them and greet them and find someone you've not had a chance to meet before, introduce yourself to them because we're expressing something of his steadfast love and faithfulness to us, to them. And then as the service begins to start and the sermon begins and they look at you and they say, well, why am I sitting in here? You have a chance to explain to your kids quite possibly that we have chosen to prioritize right now being able to have classes for the youngest amongst us and that maybe your child might have to stay in here with you for a little bit of time so that someone else who was brand new or visiting might have a space in their class and you get a chance to explain that to them. That's an aspect of being mindful of what God is doing here because I don't know if you know it or not, but the average church in America now has shrunk down to 75 people. We have three times that many people under the age of 18 in this congregation. 
So to have classes for all of those people, and if you look around, they're not middle school and high school, all right? They're elementary and under. So to have classes for all of those people takes a certain number of trained workers to be able to open up all the classes necessary to be able to facilitate all of that. And it's an exciting situation that we're working on as God is stretching us in being able to do the very thing that he's called us to do. But you may have an opportunity to be able to help encourage your child in the coming weeks if there's not a space in that class to remind them of why we're in here so that you can make space for those that God might be bringing. So if you've got a third and fourth grader, you might have them with you once or twice in the next couple of weeks because our elementary class is filled up with kindergarten through second graders because we're gonna make space for them to be able to be back there. But we're working on it. It's a chance to grow. It's a chance to get stretched. Friendly, maybe we can become more friendly. Not too friendly, but a little more friendly. A little more mindful of what God is doing and what he's making us to be. So happy birthday. God's gonna give us opportunities to grow. That's the birthday message. All right. Let's pray as we begin to jump into God's word. Father, we thank you with all of that being said. I know sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's what, but we want to thank you for, for 12 years of faithfulness. There have been so many times, not just as individuals, but even as a people, it's been hard for our hearts to be centered on the reality that you are enough, that your gospel is enough, that what's needed to affect change in people's lives, it's just your gospel. It's so easy to think there are other things. It's so easy to respond to people and circumstances in our lives in a less than grace-driven manner. It's so easy to respond to one another and, and circumstances out of a sense of guilt or a sense of anger or a sense of shame, a sense of fear rather than a confidence in who you have been and continue to be for us by your spirit. It's so easy for us to make everything about ourselves so easy to think that nothing's ever going to change for me. I'm never going to be anything different. And what could you do with me and through me for your glory? It's so easy to fall away from being gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded. And even in our faithlessness, Lord, you have remained faithful. You haven't changed. Lord, we thank you for 12 years. And we ask that you continue to narrow the scope of our focus and our intention to be the people you've called us to be as we let you do what it is you have intended to do here. We thank you for 12 years. We ask you if it would be your will for 20 more. Lord, we love you and we look forward to the stories of your faithfulness in our lives and through the people that call this place home in this city and wherever you would send them in this world. We thank you for what you've done. We ask that you would continue to bless not just this people, but even the time we have now together in your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Will we be in the next 12 years who God is making us to be even now? It's an important question. I've wrestled with it, and it's not really just about us. As we, as we come back to the story in 1 Samuel chapter 9, this is essentially the question we're dealing with in the story. Will Israel's first human king be who God wants him to be? As we pick up the story, you may remember that Israel has rejected God as their king Though he has always been for them, gone before them, defeated their enemies, provided for their security, given them all that they needed, he has been theirs, they have been his. They have craved to be like the nations around them. They don't want to be weak, they don't want to be different anymore. And they've rejected God as their king, and they have demanded from God a human king like everyone else around them. And, and God has purposed to let them have the very thing that they want in 1 Samuel chapter 9, really through chapter 12, it is the story of the ascension of this first human king. 
It happens in a series of steps. It happens in a private circumstance. It happens in a very public circumstance. And then it happens in a military circumstance. And we're going to see the same pattern repeated later in the story with David. But this morning, we have got a Herculean task ahead of us. And we're going to look at how this happens in private and how it happens in public. And as we go through the story, I just want to remind you That as we come through these Old Testament narratives, it's not just a time for us to simply learn history. There are lots of things that at first blush will be unfamiliar, and as we talk about it, it will come to light. It'll be great information. We'll we'll tack it away. We'll write it away. But when we come to God's word, even in these Old Testament narratives, first and foremost, you and I are being exposed to the character of a God who never changes. As we go through these stories and we read about the people of Israel and the the different characters in this story, more than anything, we are being exposed to the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness that God has demonstrated to his people ever since he called them to himself. And as God exposes something of his character to us through these stories, we're also going to have to come face to face with parts of our heart that we'd rather not pay attention to. Just like James says, when we come to God's word and we open it up, his word will very often serve like a mirror to our hearts. And not one of those perfect mirrors in really fancy stores when you go and look at the clothes on you and you look great wearing whatever it is you just put on. This is the mirror like you may have grown up with in the 70s or the 80s that your mom had that was mounted on the bathroom wall that swung out. And when you looked in that thing, it showed you the deepest parts of your face that you didn't even know existed the ugliest bumps and craters that you couldn't even see without that mirror. That's what God's word does to our hearts. And in one hand, it exposes something of God's character that we might be able to see then the reality of parts of our heart that left to ourselves we never want to pay attention to. That's what's going to happen this morning as we go through this story. We're going to see the faithfulness of God demonstrated over and over again for his people And as we come towards the end of the story in chapter 10, we're going to be then left to see some of the darkest parts of our hearts in relation to the faithfulness and kindness of God's grace to us. So let's pick the story back up. Chapter 9, verse 17. Holy cow, is that the time? Okay. Verse 17. As we saw last week, the providence of God working through the ordinary faithfulness of Saul looking for lost donkeys, God bringing Saul to Samuel in order to install him as the leader of God's people. We pick it back up now in verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, say that five times. Fast. I've said it for three services and I still can't do it. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? So this is back into the context of the story. We're all done with the flashback. We're back in real time. And here is Saul coming up to Samuel, unaware of who he is. You're meant to see some of the comedy in the story at this point. Saul was still clueless about Samuel. It's only his servant who knew that there was a, a seer in this town. It was his servant's idea to go find this seer to get a word about where the donkeys might be. Now here they are face to face, right there, toe to toe with Samuel. And Saul's like, can you tell me where the prophet is? He's talking right to him. And so you got to wonder what Samuel's inner response might have been. Because his verbal response in verse 19 was, that's me. I'm the seer. 
Now the story is about to pick up pace right here and I want you to read it like a human. I wish we had time to really think it through like this, but I just want you to imagine yourself in Saul's position, what it must have been like to go through what happens probably over the next 12 hours. Samuel says, that's me, I'm the prophet. Now here, I want you to go up before me to the high place for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I'll let you go and I'll tell you all that's on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them anymore. They've been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? And Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? He's like, hold on, pump your prophet break, Samuel. What are you talking about? Saul has zero idea what's going on. He was out looking for lost donkeys. He's totally unaware at this point that he was actually the one being sought. He has no idea that he is the one who's going to fulfill the desire of Israel, the demand for a king. And so verse 22, Samuel takes Saul. That's a physical word. He took him. He took Saul and his young man. He brought them into the hall. He gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were there about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. So this prophet, he didn't know anything about all of a sudden takes him by force back into this place on the high place where he's already prepared a feast. He's got 30 people around a table. Samuel, the prophet of God, serving as the priest of the Lord in that time, has a peace offering laid out. And you might remember, if you were with us earlier in the story, the peace offering is the offering that people would bring. All of the animal would be sacrificed to the Lord, but a portion of it would be reserved for the priest to eat, the leg. This was the offering that Eli's worthless sons were abusing God's people to take for themselves and barbecue however they wanted. He's got this peace offering laid out and he puts Saul at the head of the table where he would have sat. He takes the portion reserved for the priest and gives it to Saul. Saul has no idea what's going on. 30 people around the table don't know who he is. But here he is sitting in the place of honor being given by the prophet, by the priest, the priest portion of honor. And after the feast... They came down from the high place of the city and a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. He was looking for donkeys and he's now in the place with the prophet eating the priest's portion, being given a place to sleep. He's got no clue. And at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul up on the roof, get up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I might make known to you the word of God. So everything is about to come clear for Saul. An ordinary man from the smallest of tribes out looking for the most ordinary of beasts. And on this morning, he's about to encounter the word of God. And what happens will change everything. Nothing will remain the same at this point. God's word is gonna change everything for Saul. It's gonna change everything for Israel. God is intending for his word to be the foundation and the fuel for Saul's reign of his people. Just as God has intended for his word to be the identity creating, life governing, security and joy and prosperity producing reality for his people, 
It seems that it's going to be the same for Israel's king. He is to rule under the authority of God's word. But the story keeps going. Read it like a human. He ate in Samuel's place. He ate Samuel's food. He slept in the bed that Samuel made. Now he's standing in the middle of the road all alone with Samuel. He didn't even really know about Samuel before this. And so Samuel takes a flask of oil and pours it on his head and kisses him. Now what would your reaction have been if you were Saul? Would you have tensed up? I mean, I don't know. What would it have been like for you? You had to read it like a human. He doesn't know what's happening here. Samuel busts out some oil, pours it on his head and kisses him and says, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Don't be confused, Saul. It's not me that's doing this. The Lord is doing this. You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign. The Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. There's a lot said right there. I'll point one thing out because it's important for the context of the story. We don't have a whole lot of time for it though. But up to this point, I don't know if you've realized it, the word king has not been used. Twice, in verses 15 and 16 and now here, the Lord speaks to Samuel to talk to Saul and he calls him a prince. This is not prince like we think about in England. This isn't like Prince Harry. This isn't like an, a royal lineage being passed down. This word is often translated leader or vice leader, like vice king. You see, what Saul is being reminded of here by Samuel, again, it comes clear in this last little phrase. This is my heritage that you're to be a vice leader over. Listen, Saul, when you get to the place of leading the people, they're mine. They're they're my heritage. You operate under my authority. Lest you get confused, they're not your people, they're mine. It's very important for Saul's story as we go forward. But you've got to think about it like a human for just a minute. Just three days before, he left home looking for donkeys. He followed the lead of his servant to go get a word from a prophet about where the donkeys might be. And in the end, he's standing in the middle of the street with the prophet getting an altogether different word from the Lord. I mean, just imagine you you went with some friends or family on a little sightseeing vacation up in D.C. You're wandering around the streets around the Capitol. You bump into the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. You end up back at the house having a meal. Before you leave, you're sworn in as the leader of the most powerful nation in the free world. How confused would you be when you walked out of the door? Like, what are you supposed to do? Was that real? I mean, it was the Chief Justice. I just took the oath. You can imagine the the credibility gap and the confusion in Saul's mind and his heart standing in the middle of the road covered in oil with the prophet now walking back away. Well, in the kindness of God, God intends for Saul to have full assurance of his word towards him. So in the next 10 verses, God is going to give Saul three very specific, very clear signs of assurance three very specific things that will remove from Saul's mind any idea of chance, all confidence that God is doing what God has said. When you depart from me on this day, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Two things pinging around in Saul's mind. Rachel, 
Jacob's second most favored wife, mother of Joseph and Benjamin, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, is being reminded back at Rachel's Rachel's tomb of the beginnings of God's heritage, of his people, of the patriarchs, and of God's promises. You see, when Jacob got ready to die and he blessed his 12 sons, he blessed his son Benjamin saying, from you there will be kings. Saul, Benjaminite, being reminded in the presence of the tomb, of the promises of God and the heritage of his people, and then by these men of something they could have known nothing about, the donkeys that were lost. Be assured, Saul, you're not going on this alone. You don't have to worry, I'm with you. But he gives him two more signs to assure his heart. Verse three, you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor and three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. They're taking the things necessary to offer a sacrifice. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you shall accept from their hand. They freely give Saul the the pieces, the elements of this sacrifice set apart to God by which most scholars agree that this is an indication that they see Saul as being set apart. This is confirming Saul's set-apartness by God for his task. Rest assured, Saul, the people are going to receive you. But thirdly, verse five, after that you'll come to Gibeah where there is a garrison of the Philistines. Now, Gibeah is Saul's hometown, and the Philistines have encroached Israel's territory all the way into this place. You'll get there, and as soon as you come to the city, you're gonna meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place. They have harps and tambourines and flutes and lyres before them prophesying. It's there the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Those two things weren't enough, Saul. You're gonna meet a group of wandering prophets and they're gonna be feeling it. And some of you, this is your favorite part of the story. It's in the Old Testament that, that God would often act upon flawed people just like Saul, just like Samson, just like Gideon, just like Bezalel. He would act upon them in such a way that they would be empowered to do the very thing, a particular task that God had called them to. Be assured, Saul, I'm going to give you all that you need to be who I'm calling you to be. See, God wants Saul to be assured of his word. So he gives him these three signs, so specific in nature that there's no way they can be misinterpreted as chance. This is the kind assurance of God to Saul's heart. He wants Saul to have complete confidence in him so that Saul can act as king under the Lord's authority. And he doesn't simply assure his heart of these things. He empowers Saul for the task We can't spend too much time with it here this morning, but friends, God still delights to assure the hearts of his people. Sometimes he'll do it in ways and through a series of events that there can be no other explanation other than the kindness of his favor, reminding and assuring our hearts of who he is and what he has promised. God wants us to be assured of who he is. He wants us to be assured that what he said is true and is best He wants our hearts to be assured and to be anchored in the confidence that he is for us, that we're his, that he's given us all that we need, that we might be able to act in obedience to his word with confidence and joy. See, God still empowers and equips his people today by his spirit. Except today, unlike in the old covenant, what was uncommon and temporary then is now no longer uncommon but common. It's no longer temporary but permanent. 
God's people on this side of the cross are indwelt by the very spirit of God permanently. His spirit is at work bearing witness with our spirit that we are indeed his children. His spirit is at work in our hearts, transforming our hearts to reflect the character of his son. His spirit is at work in our hearts, changing the desires of our heart to reflect the desires of his heart. What was uncommon and temporary before the cross by the grace of God through faith in Christ is no longer uncommon and temporary, but absolutely guaranteed and permanent for God's people. God would give Saul all the power he needed by his spirit. But here's the thing. This is important to the story. It's important for our lives even today. This power is to be exercised in obedience to God's word. It's another sermon for another time, but if we're not careful... It's very easy for some of us to get caught up in the craving of the power and the experience of God's spirit while we have little to no enthusiasm for obedience to God's word. That's why when God gives Saul these three assurances and the empowering of his spirit, he follows it up with two very clear instructions that he's supposed to obey. Yes, I'm with you. Yes, I'm empowering you. But the exercise of that presence and of that power is to be done under the authority of my word. So following these assurances, he gets two instructions. Saul was not going to be allowed to be an authority to himself. Even as king, he was going to have to be subject to God's word as it came to him through God's prophet. So verse 7, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. That's the first instruction. It's important. See, do what your hand finds to do. It's an idiom that you find in the Bible. It's used in Judges chapter 9. Now, if you go and you read Judges chapter 9, I think it's verse 30 or 33. The context around that idiom is military action against the enemies of God's people. So the first instruction that God seems to give Saul on the backside of assuring his heart about what he said to him and empowering him by his spirit is now you're in Gibeah, the Philistines have a garrison in that place. Is God giving him the instruction now, having been empowered by his spirit, to go take military action against the Philistines? The enemies of God's people who have encroached the territory of God's people? Most scholars believe that's exactly what's happening here. And based on the context, I'm fairly inclined to agree with them. First instruction as God comes upon you with the power that you need to be who he's calling you to be, do what your hand finds to do right there. Take action against the Philistines. I agree with the assessment because when you read verse eight in the second instruction, Samuel says, go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. See, Gilgal was important in the history of God's people. Gilgal was the place where Joshua renewed Israel's covenant with God. It was the first resting place for God's people after 40 years of wandering. Saul is to do what his hand finds to do when the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and then go to that place where Samuel would meet him and offer burnt offerings. Samuel offered burnt offerings to the Lord last time in 1 Samuel 6 after they defeated the Philistines and the ark was returned back to its rightful place. Then I'll offer peace offerings, the common offering offered up to God after God's people would win a military victory. In the context of things, I think Saul is given a very clear instruction. After God has assured you of what he has said you are to do and empowered you for the person he's calling you to be, you do the very thing that God has called you to do, then you wait here for me. And I'm going to tell you what's next. 
the word of God to the leader of God's people through the prophet of God. It was to set the trajectory for Saul's rule. So, verse nine, when Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. That's all you get. Very specific sign. Men's and breads and wines and all kinds of stuff. All you get is it came to pass. But then the narrator, he seems to focus in on that third sign, the one you're all interested in. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he had prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? You gotta read it like a human, right? Last time we saw Saul with Samuel, Samuel poured that oil all over his head, a whole flask of it, right? All scented up, oily coming down his hair, been walking down the road, spinning the afternoon, greasy and dirty, smelling like patchouli, coming down, playing music and prophesying with all the prophets. He's in his hometown. This is the tallest, most handsome, wealthy man in the tribe of Benjamin. Everyone knew him and that's what they see coming into town. All they can think is, what has happened to Saul? What's going on with him? And in fact, the writer tells us, if you keep reading, hold on, look at, look at verse 12. It became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? Like, it's like you and I seeing something that defies explanation and we'll say, well, wonders never cease. In Saul's own hometown, people kept saying, instead of, well, wonders never cease, well, Saul among the prophets? So baffling was this transformation. The people who knew him did not know how to respond to it. God has called Saul by his word. He's given Saul his spirit. He's assured Saul of his presence and his power that Saul might joyfully obey God's word and lead and rule God's people. We have every expectation that he's going to do that because so far, Saul has been the one son in the story that's joyfully obeyed his father. So the spirit of the Lord has rushed upon him. He's prophesying just like Samuel said he would do. And what was his first instruction? When that happens, go do what your hand finds to do. With all the assurance and the empowerment of God, is Saul gonna be obedient to the word? Would you be? Let's read the story. Verse 13, when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where'd you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they weren't to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly, the donkeys have been found. That's it. The next line is from the writer. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, Saul did not tell him anything. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why Saul held that close. Maybe it's because he did not obey the word of the Lord. Maybe if interpretation is correct and doing what his hand finds to do was indeed engaging the Philistines after being empowered by the Spirit and Saul didn't do it. Maybe something of his own conscience is pricking him there. I don't know. Maybe Saul, his, his heart, was just not capable in that moment of clinging tightly to the assurance that God had given him about what God had said and what God was going to do. We don't know exactly why. But here's the thing, if you're honest with yourself, you can't get mad at Saul for that. We're more like him in this than we want to admit. And we're gonna see more of that later on as we get in the chapter, but 
This is just a little more of the profile of this first king that we're going to see in the coming weeks. But that's the first phase. That's the private. What happens in private there with Samuel now has to go public for all of God's people. So verse 17, Samuel calls all the people together to Mitzpah. Now, if you've been with us, you might remember that Mitzpah is the place where Samuel got all of God's people together to repent. After they defeated the Philistines, he led them in repentance for the Lord. So maybe Samuel's hoping for something similar here. Verse 18, <clears throat> Samuel said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. He starts off with all of God's people reminding them of of God's continued grace, his continued faithfulness. This is a similar prelude that you find in Exodus to God giving his word, giving his law to his people. This is who I am. This is who I have been for you. Here is what I'm requiring of you. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 10, that proclamation of God's faithfulness, it, it's followed not by a requirement, it's followed by an accusation. Today you have rejected your God, the one who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses. You have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. This is who God is for you. This is who he's continued to be for you. This is all that he's done for you. In your craving to be like everybody else, what you have done is rejected him. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now read it like a human. Remember, they don't know really why they're there. They don't know that this is going to be the public coronation of Saul. The last time the tribes of Israel were brought together like this and lots were cast, do you know what happened? Come on, Bible scholars. Judges chapter seven. Last time it happened, Israel had been defeated as they were taking the land that God had promised because someone had sinned against God's word. So they brought the tribes of Israel together. They cast lots to sift out to the man, Achan, who had sinned against God's word and brought the defeat of God's people. Achan was summarily punished, let's just say that. So here they are, Samuel gets them all together. He declares God's faithfulness and grace, reminds them though, of the idolatry of their craving and their demand for a king. Then he starts to cast lots. They've got to be wondering what's about to happen. Last time this happened, it did not go well for them. So they cast the lots and the tribe of Benjamin is taken. Then they keep going. Benjamin is brought near by its clans. The clan of the Marites was taken by Lot and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. And at this point, they don't know why Saul's being chosen. Achan was the last one chosen. Is this going to be a punishment for their sinful craving for a king? And is it going to fall on the head of this man, Saul? I mean, he is a Benjaminite after all. They are the ones guilty of such a horrible atrocity that we talked about previously in Judges 19, causing a civil war amongst the tribes of Israel, Benjamin nearly being wiped out. That's where Saul's from. What's actually happening here? In the place and by the means with which Achan was chosen to receive God's wrath, Saul is going to be chosen to be the first king of Israel. The problem, though, is that Saul went AWOL. When they sought him, he couldn't be found. Read it like a human. Who else knew what God had said? Samuel and Saul. But he's ducked out. 
And there's a tragic comedy here because at some point, go back this week and read these stories, nine up through this point in 10. So far, the word found has been used in different ways 12 times. The servant happened to find a half shekel of silver in his possession. They happened to find the women at the well. They told him he happened to come at just the right time to find the seer, to find the prophet. He was gonna have three signs given to him that he would find along the way. After the Lord comes upon him, he's supposed to find what his hand is to do 12 times. Things being found is huge. This whole thing started trying to find lost donkeys, right? But here's Israel now, the precipice of getting the very thing they've demanded and they can't even find their own king. So they have to rely on God to do it for them. They won't trust him to be their king, but they can't even find their king without his help. That's the point being taught. Verse 22, they had to inquire of the Lord. Is there still a man to come? Because the one that's been cast by Lot, this Saul, the son of Kish, he can't be found. And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. God has to out him. This man, taller than everybody else, better looking than everyone else, from a wealthy, wealthy family, but little tribe, but everything you could want and imagine, he's hiding in the baggage. The deep insecurity that is going to plague Saul throughout his entire story is being put on stage for us this morning. A deep insecurity despite all the assurance that God has provided. But here's the thing, insecurity is a nasty virus. Insecurity has led to many unwise decisions and loads of wasted energy in my life and I'm sure it has in yours. I don't get mad at Saul here. I get Saul here. I mean, ask me what I feel, how I feel and what I think about myself on Sunday night. Ask me tomorrow morning as I look out and can't figure out exactly what's happening and as I sit in quiet on Sunday night, I wonder, does any of this matter at all? I mean, how can this hour make any real difference and I can't even tell that people are engaged? There's got to be someone else who's better at this than me. The voice of insecurity, it's a smothering voice. And it can lead to all manner of unwise decisions. Loads of wasted energy. We're gonna see it unravel in the story of Saul, but if we're really honest, it it unravels in our own lives. The problem we have when we come to it in stories like this is we're careful to read this story, but we're not careful to consider how we respond to what we're reading, and we begin to think, but if I had the assurances that Saul had, I mean, three of them, The prophet said, this is what's going to happen. Three things, they could have never happened apart from God making it happen. If I had that, and then he had the empowering of God's spirit, changed him into an entirely different man, if I had that, I don't think I would have been hiding amongst the bags. But here's the thing, friends. God has given you and I a far more certain assurance than even Saul had. You and I have an assurance of God's faithfulness that transcends anything Saul could have ever imagined. We we have it in Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews will say that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. We're, We're seeing it here with Saul. But in these days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. It's through Jesus that you and I have been given the identity of sons and daughters of God. 
What Peter will say to the church, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. He has defined who we are and he has set us out on the task that he has set before us. Peter says it's to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Peter goes on to remind the church, just like God would remind and assure Saul, that God indeed in his grace has given us everything that we would need to be who he's called us to be and do what he's called us to do. Peter says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Do you believe that? Everything that you need for life and godliness. That's a massive statement. Everything you need for life and godliness, God has given you the assurance that he delights in giving you. He has given your heart the anchors that it desperately craves to know who he is and who you are. He's given you everything that you need to be who he's called you to be and do what he's called you to do. Do you believe not just that, but that he delights in doing that for you? Friends, this is where in the story, the the makeup mirror begins to come out. So far, we, we've just seen the demonstrated faithfulness of God over and over again to his people, delighting to assure the hearts of his people that his word is indeed true, that he's present with them, they have nothing to fear, that he's given him his very spirit to be and to do all that he's called them to do. He has remained faithful. It's here now that we have to consider in the rest of the story, have we allowed our own insecurities like Saul, to rob the joy that God has intended for our hearts and cripple the obedience that's required? Are we clinging to the assurance that God has provided for us in his son through his word and by his spirit, the very anchors that our heart has been so desperate for? Saul missed it. In his selfish insecurity, he's hiding from his own coronation. What about you and I? I think if we're honest, we're more like Saul sometimes than we would want to admit. We're also a little bit more like Israel than we care to think. This is where the story goes and how it begins to end. Verse 23, the people ran. They, they took Saul from hiding in the bags. They, they go find their king hiding in the bags. And just like Samuel took him to the place where he would anoint him, they now take Saul. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders up. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? I, I would love to know the tone of his voice in that. I can't reenact it because I don't really know. I think one way, but I'm not sure. There is none like him among all the people. I wonder if it was sarcasm. Right, he has, he's bigger, he's taller, he's more handsome. He's hiding in the bags. And all the people shouted, find us another one. No. They all shouted, long live the king. Evidently, Israel was too captivated by how handsome Saul was and how wealthy he was to care much about the fact that their king was hiding in the bags. He looked the part, and that seemed to be enough for them. This is what they craved. This was the king they craved. So God would give them exactly what they wanted. We used to say on... The teams I used to play on, there were guys like this. They were all show and no go. He's going to be everything their heart sinfully desired. He's going to be strong on the outside, 
But as the story goes on, he's going to be far more like the people he's supposed to lead, very weak on the inside. And God is going to be faithful to his people through Saul, and Saul will deliver God's people from the hand of the Philistines, but in that process, he is going to break their heart. And we're left again looking in the mirror of God's word, having to ask ourselves, how much like Israel am I? always quick to assume that the answer to my issues and problems is one that can be solved with the perfect solution that I come up with, the craving that I think I have to have in order to be and do what it is I want to do. Give me a king. How often have the good things that God has delighted to provide for me become things I have to have in order to be who I want to be? How often have good things morphed into damaging and dangerous and ultimate things in my heart? Give me what I want. How often have I thought those kings could solve the problems I was facing rather than recognizing the real problems I'm dealing with are one of the heart that require not the king that I'm craving, but require repentance. Friend Samuel is going to bring this episode of Saul's ascension to a close. And he's going to remind Saul, he's going to remind Israel, he's going to remind God's people even now as we read it. The pathway to the joy we desire, the security that we crave, is only found in the pathway of obedience to God's word. Samuel, having watched the response of the people, having watched their delight in this man, he told the people right there the rights and the duties of the kingship and he wrote them in a book and he laid them before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. No doubt Samuel put in that book the requirements and the expectations from Deuteronomy 17 that God had already said would be required and expected of the king that he would give his people in their time. But Samuel does this in the way that he does because it's a reminder, this king is going to be under the authority of God. His leadership was to be subject to God's word. God's word was not meant to be a restriction of his leadership. It was meant to be the direction for his freedom. This was the means by which he was to govern rightly for God's glory and Israel's good. And we're left again one more time as the story ends looking in the mirror at what our heart really believes. Whether we recognize it or not, we like Saul are people now on this side of the cross still under the authority of God's word. You and I, by God's grace, are meant to cherish God's word to us Why? Because our hearts are growing deeper and more anchored in our assurance and confidence with regards to who it is that's given it to us. I am the one who has set you free from bondage. This word to you is meant to be a lamp unto your feet, a light to your path, leading you to the deepest and strongest joy and freedom that you were created for. Friends, we don't keep God's word in order to gain freedom or joy. Friends, that was given to us by God's grace. We delightfully submit to God's word, knowing who it is it's come from, that we might deeply enjoy it, that we might deeply maintain and enjoy the freedom and the security and the assurance that God has given us. This morning, as we prepare to respond to God's word, and musicians can come on and come forward if they want, the question that we're still left with in the story is what kind of king is Saul going to be? 
We've only gotten glimpses of what he's like, but what we've seen in magnitude is God's continued faithfulness to him, his kindness to him, his word to him, his power for him. What kind of king is he going to be? And for now, we're, we're left to have to wait for the answer. We don't yet know. But this morning, you and I have to answer the question for ourselves. Will we rest secured, anchored, and the assurance that God has given us through his word by his spirit most clearly seen in his son. I mean, this is the confident assurance that you and I profess to believe in, the confident assurance you and I proclaim each week as we respond to God's word as we receive communion. We are professing physically as we take the bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken in our place for our sins, dipping it in the cup, remembering his blood shed and poured out. We are professing with those actions that our hearts are anchored in the assurance that God is indeed for us. He does not change. The assurances that he has given his people from days of old are the assurances that he's given us now more clearly through his son. The assurance that God gives us, he intends for us to enjoy is an assurance that's meant to compel us to live with confidence according to his word. If the one who loves us so much to set us free through the sacrifice of his son and loves us so much to empower us to be the very people he calls us to be by giving us his spirit, if he loves us that much, why would we ever doubt his path for our greatest and deepest joy? Friends, as we prepare to respond this morning, the, the mirror doesn't always reflect back the most flattering picture. But praise God, he gives us something more comforting. He gives us consistent reminders of his steadfast faithfulness and love. Even when we see that we're more like Saul than we want to admit. Even when we see we're more like Israel than we can imagine. Even in our faithlessness, he remains faithful. He never changes. Let me pray for us this morning and we'll respond together as a people to God's word. Father, we thank you in a time in which there are so many voices and so many things that seek to draw the the confidence and the hope of our heart away from all that you are and have been and continue to be for us. So many things that seek to blur and dull our picture of your grace to us and your son, Lord that you continue to remind us even in stories that seem distant and old at times that you remain faithful, that your grace, it, it hasn't diminished, that even in our faithlessness and distraction, Lord, you don't change. Lord, this year we want to be people who see you so clearly, whose hearts are anchored not in illusions of you and imaginations of you, but in the reality of who you are and continue to be for us. And so we ask this morning that you would do the miracle by your spirit in every heart here this morning that you know has to happen, that we might see you clearly, that we might see the magnitude of your faithfulness to us and your son, that we might turn to him with all we are and find our joy and our hope and our security and our identity anchored in the reality of your faithfulness to us. We ask that you would do that this morning, this very day, In Jesus' name, amen. We are gonna respond to God's word together this morning as the music plays. You're gonna be invited to come forward and receive communion for those of you who have believed upon Jesus, repented of your sins, cast yourself on him as your king and savior. You can come forward and take communion, receive the elements, we'll sing, we'll celebrate, and we'll be sent out from here together. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green. 
given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.